Things get squirrely. <laughs> Four, three, two, one, boom. I got to ask Donnie Vincent who made that knife because uh, people always ask me about it. It's awesome. I could have used it on Saturday. When oh, when the shit got squirrely <laughs> at the yeah. UFC. Yeah. Well, the, the side that you guys were on, where you guys were in the crowd, did anybody jump towards you that way? No, the crowd mainly started. Yeah, it we, was because we were, we had, I'm pretty sure we had Irish right in front of us, and right in front of them was some of Khabib's guys. And Khabib's guys were turning around, just literally throwing the fingers right to the Irish guys the whole time. <sighs> So then once that happened, it was like I was lucky though. I had uh I had I had Aubrey and Whitney right there. They were Aubrey was They in, were there to protect you. Yeah, they they were in full <laughs> throwdown mode. I was just I was one of the dumb people just kind of looking around like they were okay, gonna throw there, mushrooms it, at everybody. Yeah, is there any immediate danger? No. It uh I mean obviously it seemed way worse over on your side, but I was more worried when they made us leave. Because the further up you got in the bleachers and once you got out into the concession area and in the bathrooms, that's where stuff was going down. Like just people from the crowd, um, you know, guys with Irish flags all obviously were getting trash talked to them. And there was a big brawl, right? Yeah, right next to me on the other side from where they were sitting. Oh, that's right. There was uh, one just to our right. I was looking the, left. I believe it was the guy that jumped in in the red shirt on Khabib's team. When they were trying to leave, when they were getting them out, mm. people in the crowd were like, ah, they started throwing shit at them first. Like that's how the that's where the first shit was getting thrown down. And someone, how did the people know that it was them? We we all saw him. We like, could see. The guy next saw to them. Me was like, "That's the guy. That's the guy right there, right?" Uh, and I was like, "I I don't know." And he went and tried to do something. And I was like, right, <sighs> "Good luck. I don't know what you're doing, bud." You know, there's a price to be paid for all this shit. Like all the all the drama and the trash talking that makes it so fun. It also you know it has the potential for blowing up in your face. Ultimately, like a couple people got punched. But it was in an event where a bunch of people got punched. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> way more than that. It was awesome. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? It's like we we made it seem it seemed like it was way worse than it really was because in any other situation it would be way worse than it really was. Like if it was a rock concert mm -hmm. and some dudes just from, you know, like you know, if one band was the opening band and then there was another band that was in a brawl with them and they were they were the main event. And then the fans of one band threw down with the fans of the other band and beat the shit out of each other. That would, for whatever reason, be way worse than when it's at a fight. Because if it's at a fight, it's just fighters. Oh, I saw this. The insane clown. <laughs> <Same time. laughs> this was going on. This insane clown posse guy tried to drop kick Fred Durst. He, Fred Durst wasn't even looking at him. <laughs> so Running head start and misses. And look at him. He turns around. He's like, what? And he just kept going. I haven't seen Fred And then they dragged that dude off. I mean, that is maybe the worst public dropkick <laughs> in the history of the world. <laughs> I think they meant he dropped when he tried to kick. Well, he tried to. That was a classic <laughs> dropkick. Yeah. Classic pro wrestling dropkick. But his problem is he threw it like a pro wrestler would, where you don't really <laughs> hit the guy. You know, I mean, just kind of touched him. And if Fred was playing along, it would have been awesome. Yeah, we need a slow-mo replay. Fred would have went can't. flying. And it would have been, you know, fuck. I think a lot of the a lot of the uh, the thing that's going through people's minds too is when you're at a fight like that, 
there's a lot of people in the crowd that can throw down. Yes. It's not like, you know, you go to a, well, if you go to a hard a hard rock concert of any kind, Clay Guida is going to be there somewhere, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but if, as long as you can avoid Clay, like your opportunity of finding a guy that can really throw cuffs is going to be way smaller than when you're at the UFC and you look around, it's hard not to see cauliflower ear. Yeah. So, I mean, someone who's in the crowd that's just a shit talker, he knows if I just turn around and talk shit, I could get wrapped up and be dead quick. Yeah, that's a very high l- number of people that could fuck you up at one of those events. It's probably like 30%. 30% of the people in the audience actually know how to fight. That's high. I think that I think it'd be higher eh. at a UFC. Eh. At least a basic. I think it's about 30. I'd say about 30%. I feel like if you just like parse the audience out, like how many how many of you guys have ever been punched? How many guys ever fuck somebody up? How many guys actually train? How many guys know how to train and like do it on a regular basis? How many guys are in shape? Like if if, if shit went down, how many guys could actually throw down for a solid thirty seconds? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 where you that's where I would shine. I'm like, I'm gonna ride this out for two minutes, and then these these giraffe elk legs are getting ready to freaking start dancing on some people. <laughs> Let some people spaz out for a little while, and then then I'm good. People, don't, you know, when people were talking about um, like. Uh, Connor and his conditioning for this fight. Like one of the things that uh, um, Cam Cam Haynes said was like, you know, he needs to start running. Like go go run in the hills. I'm like, that ain't gonna help. Like, I mean, it would help some, but the thing is, when someone's wrestling you and they're on top of you, fucking you up like that, you just get you're just getting drained. It's like a vampire just sucking blood out of you. Like, yeah, you're you're exhausted. You're carrying all their weight, and you're getting beat up, and you're, you're stressed, and you know you're trying to move, and you can't breathe well because the person's weight is on top of you. So you're not getting like real breaths, and you're constantly resisting their weight. And it's way easier for them than it is for you. It's way easier to stay on top than it is to be on the bottom. It's a disaster. Well, people that grew up wrestling, you know, you look at Miller, Mendez, Guida. Um, those guys have experienced that forever. Like yeah. it's it's ingrained in them. Most wrestlers don't lose like a, a classic wrestling physique, even as adults. They still look like they're like they were guys that were real athletic at one time. You know, I remember one of the first things my dad taught me. You know, when I was younger in school, he's like, uh, you know, I think it was after the first guy, you know, wanted to fight me on the playground. He's like, you know. If, if you don't know if the guy's good at fighting, don't worry about it. Unless he's a wrestler, he's like, just, if it's a wrestler, try to back down. Because he's like, you don't know what to do. <laughs> Smart dad. And, and yeah, it was classic. This this weekend when I was watching that fight, I'm like, okay, here we go. This is just a classic. He's going to, you know, Connor had like 30 seconds at the start of those rounds, and then it was just a mauling. You know? Yeah, well, John Cavanaugh, who's t- Connor's trainer, will be here next. He's going to be here at 11. And we'll get a chance to talk to him and see what the fuck he thinks and what happened. And the the bottom line is that guy's so much better than him as a grappler. So much better. Yep. There, I mean, he is on such a high level. When I talk to Daniel Cormier, Daniel Cormier says that guy schools world class wrestlers in the gym. Just throws people around. Yeah, assassins. Yeah. Like probably one after another. 
Yeah, he's I mean, just imagine he's the training. a special talent. He's been wrestling since he was a little kid, man. I mean, he really has. There's a you ever see the video of him wrestling a bear? <laughs> no, but I want you to. You never saw it? No, but I want to. It's fucking hilarious. It's him wrestling a brown bear. It's like a small brown bear. Like a Russian brown bear, <laughs> like our version of a grizzly in Russia, and he's so fucking wrestling So you're saying like a it. coastal peninsula bear? Yeah. Like a peninsula? Yeah. Look, look. What is yeah, happening? Yeah, that's him when he's a little kid. Look at this. I mean, who? first of all, who the fuck lets <laughs> their kid yeah, exactly. wrestle a bear? And the bear's biting him. The bear's biting him. Look at this bear's biting his clothes. Bear's a total cheater. Which prepared him for Connor this weekend because Connor did a lot of cheating. Okay, Look, if I would have saw this, position. I would be making a bet. He gave up position because of the bite. You see that? He was on top, and the bear bit him, and he let the bear get on top. Now he's on top. Yep, that's it's over. Look at this, but it's not. Bears are squirrely, man, and bears have a really good guard. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the look at the double leg. He's laughing. That is that's awesome. Him. That's him as a little boy. Look at that, nineteen ninety seven. See, we can't do that stuff in America. I know. That's why we're going to lose. Imagine if Mendez got to go out and just wrestle bears. <laughs> Look how little he is, too. I mean, he's a little kid there, man. He looks like he's about eight years old. Actually, I think in the neighborhood I grew up with the Guidas, they probably had one of these in their garage. A bear? Yeah. Clay and, and, uh, and Jason. They were both kind of nuts. Maybe they did wrestle some bears. What, uh, what state was that? It was in Illinois. So that Northern would be a Illinois, black bear? Johnsburg. Yeah, probably. <laughs> this is awesome. It's crazy. You know what's interesting? I've, I've been... Um, Why doesn't he bite back? Didn't get that training. Yeah, don't do that, because then the bear's really going to get into it. Look at the oh, bear's trying to bite his head yeah. and shit. <laughs> well, just, it's a little bear. But his dad just, like, let him ride it out. He's yeah. good. Well, the bear He's... is obviously being nice. They're having fun. I mean, even though it's the bear... You know, it's like when a dog is biting you when you're playing with them, and they're not, they're not trying to hurt you. Look at that. But the, the, the bear's single... also on a chain, which is kind of fucked up. Because the bear can't circle correctly. Yeah, but think correctly. of those. Think, I mean, that bear Look at that is guard. Look at that guard. Very good. Bears have a very good guard. Look oh. at this. <laughs> Look, he shoots awesome. in low. I mean, you Russians are a fucking different breed, man. Yeah, They're exactly. a different breed. And as things are hard over there, we try to make things softer and softer over here. We're giving kids participation trophies. We don't want bullying. They're, don't like, want... they're like, we're bringing a grizzly into yeah. the assembly, and we're going to wrestle grizzlies today. Yeah, how old are you? Eight? And you haven't wrestled a grizzly yet? What are you, a pussy? Yeah, here we Come go. On. Yeah. A couple shots of vodka, grizzly bear. Well, you're seeing a lot of very, very tough guys come from that part of the world. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they're fighting in combat Not sports Not just guys. Now. Yeah. Women, yeah. Not just guys. Yeah. And, and as much as we're talking about wrestling... He impressed me stand up. Like, oh yeah, he cracked Connor I mean, with that big right hand. He 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 stood up enough to just say, you know, I'm going to sit here and take a few, and I'm going to give a few. But then he went to probably what his game plan was. I would assume. Well, you have to stand for a little while because if he just shoots in, he'll get caught with a knee or caught with a punch rushing in. But uh, he, I mean. He landed the bigger shot. There was one big giant shot that was landed in that fight, and it was by hand. Yeah. I mean, Connor hit him with some pretty good front kicks to the body and some other things, but didn't really get much off on the feet. Not like classic left jabs that just break people down. Yeah. And on the ground, I mean, he just got mauled. And it's one of those things where you see that guy in the beginning, guys fight him off a little bit. And then as the fight wears on, 
He just gets more and more dominant. They get more and more exhausted. Really, this fight just makes Ally Aquinta look like a god. I mean, that's the the most impressive thing about it. Ally Aquinta went five rounds with him, stood toe-to-toe with him, and, you know, gave him at least a struggle. At least he gave him a bit of adversity. Yep. You know, managed to survive on the ground much better than Connor did. Managed to get back up to his feet. Managed to stuff a bunch of takedowns. And on the feet was a real threat. You know, I mean, obviously Khabib didn't prepare for Ally Aquinta. He prepared for Connor. But Ally Aquinta didn't even prepare for five rounds. He only prepared for three. So yeah. there was so much to that fight. What do you think will happen with Connor now? I mean, I'm worried I- what happens with Khabib. Yeah. I hope they well, sit everybody down and they go, look, everybody's all right. Come on. Yeah. You know? So yeah. the guy who rushed in the cage and punched Connor in the face, that guy, that yeah. guy should be in the most trouble. Because, you know, the guy just fought four rounds, got the fuck beaten out of him, got choked. I heard a lot of people, there's a lot of silly non-experts out there saying that that wasn't a choke or that wasn't a, a neck crank. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. That That is absolutely a neck crank. When someone gets their arm around your head like that, and then what they do is they grab it like this, and they pinch the elbow. They put the forearm on his back mm-hmm. like this. So as the arm is across the neck, and then they grip it like this, and the forearm goes into the back, and as you're pulling like this, you're pushing with your forearm and yanking with your hand. It is a terrible neck crank. Um, they call it, Dean Lister actually yeah, has a video on it. It's, he calls it the fulcrum choke. And it's a nasty choke. So, you know, I thought he was going under the neck. Here, you can see it here. Dean Lister, who's a world champion, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. And uh, that's my friend Hans, Hans Mollenkamp behind him. Now, watch how he does this. See how he's... He's grabbing a hold of it. And what he's going to do is he's going to clamp his hands. See how he grips his hands? Yep. And so it crushes he's, he's doing esophagus. it like this. No, no, no. It, you can go right over your face. It can go over your neck. It can go over your face. It can go over your fucking cheekbones. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even have to go under the chin. If it goes under the chin, that's awesome. But you see what's going on with his forearm? Yeah. See how he's pull, push, pulling with leverage. his arms? Yeah. Arm. Or you could do it. Some, some guys do it like this. But I think this is probably the best way to do it. But as you're right here, this part just digs that elbow. Yeah, perfect. Perfect example. See, he's pulling on it with his his right arm, and then his left arm is pushing down with his forearm on Connor's shoulder. It is a nasty, nasty neck crank. And your your head is getting popped off. And first of all, that guy could squeeze the shit out of you. All you have to do, there's a bunch of guys who could put you to sleep like that. Uh, Marcelo Garcia's one. He puts guys to he's put guys to sleep without even getting under the chin. He just gets your head, just gets your head in there and squeezes. Eddie Bravo can do that too. If he gets your head in there, you, you don't even have to. It doesn't even have to be under the chin. He just really puts you to sleep with your own fucking head. <laughs> just wraps it around your head and squeezes it so tight that no blood is getting to your brain. Yeah. So. There's a lot of armchair quarterbacks out there saying that that was a neck crank. You're incorrect. And uh, have Dean Lister do that shit to you, <laughs> and you will know I'm that I'm pretty that... sure I had Jocko do that to me. <sighs> my, my throat is still... You don't want that. No. Why yeah. were you rolling with Jocko? That is a terrible idea. Well, why, did he, why did he do that to you? <laughs> what did you do to him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You were just trying to learn, right? Yeah, I was trying to learn. And I, you know, he said, well, who wants to roll? And I just said, me. 
Yeah. And and he just he kind of just looked at me. He's like, well, just try to do something. <laughs> <laughs> but you're taking classes now, right? You're taking 10th grade? When I can, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got one in um, Altoona, Iowa. So thanks to you and Eddie for hooking me up with Damien. Which, shout out. What Shout out to Damien. What's super important is drilling. That's the most important thing yep. when, in the beginning. It's sort of like uh, it, uh, there's very there's parallels in archery for sure because archery it's what's really important is your technique. Your technique is almost everything. Like doing everything correctly, and that's the same thing with jujitsu. Same thing with Muay Thai, Taekwondo, anything. It's just technique um, and doing it over and over again correctly until it's ingrained in your system. Yeah, it's information overload for sure. That's one of the hardest parts for me is I'm so new at it that mm -hmm. I feel like my cognitive functioning is not at a level to to take in. I mean, it's there's so much going on. And he several people have told me they're like there there comes a point where all of a sudden it just it, it something clicks and you start to comprehend everything, but until that moment happens it's you know you're going to struggle to remember what you talked about last time or how to do it exactly right but mm. eventually there there comes a time when it, when it clicks and it starts to you know you do start to soak in stuff and i'm definitely not to that point yet i mean just even some of the basic drills the one thing i do understand that they were um impressed by is just leverage on joints you know, because they were talking about some of the different arm bars and stuff. You know, they were like, well, if the elbow's like this, and I said, yeah, that won't work. The elbow has to be like this. And I remember Damien looked at me like, how do you know that? And I'm like, you know how many arms I've dissected off animals? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, you have to, if you have to knock four hooves off an elk quarter to pack it out, if you don't know where the joint is and how to how to bend it and, and hit it just right to crack that off. That's a good point. And, you know, hips, shoulders, even taking the head off. I mean, you know. I think that too, but also your understanding of, like, the proper positioning of your shoulders and your elbow and everything in archery. Yeah. I think just an understanding of the human body alone, you know, I think that that helps you tremendously. It's one of the reasons why people that are really good at gymnastics excel at jiu-jitsu. Uh, people are really good at breakdancing. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, breakdancers excel. Um, yoga, a lot of yoga people. Yep. They get really good at yoga. They can excel at jiu-jitsu too. It's just you you have a, just an understanding of what, what the way your body moves. And my, yeah, mind, bo mind, body, just connection. Like being able to, to really have a mind-muscle connection. Some people don't understand that. You tell them to do a pull-up, and you're like, you really want to use lats. And they're like, well, what's that? Yeah, they don't know. They're they just have yanking. No yeah, they're yeah. just pulling. And some people, when they when they pull a bow for the first time, even big guys, they struggle pulling a bow because they're not – their technique's poor. So they're, you know, they're lifting up high and they're pulling all with bicep down. And it's mm -hmm. like, man, can you just lift up and go straight back with, you know, just certain muscles of the back? And when they see it, they're like, how do you do that? And it's just understanding of leverage and muscle. And then, it, you know, once they understand that flow, it gets really easy. But until that, it looks like they're trying to literally 
do a max rep. It's that too, but it's also you probably have done it a million times. So your your arms are so conditioned it, to do that. It's such a natural movement. Probably, possibly more. Probably more se- than a several million. million. Yeah, I would say probably well, so, several. Well, here's a perfect example I use. Most people, even if they have like a strong left arm, like if I go like, flex your arm, you see a good left bicep. You know, you look like you got good shoulders in your left hand. And then I bring you to a heavy bag, and I say throw a left hook. Most people's left hooks are fucking dog shit. <laughs> just straight up dog shit. Yeah, I try to get someone to throw it. They're like, Ugh. it just, Ugh. it just doesn't work. It doesn't it's listen. It's like having someone throw a baseball left-handed. It just looks terrible. It's even worse. <laughs> I think you might be able to throw because the concept of throwing seems normal, but the concept of digging in with your toes and turning your body into a hook, and then if you do it and you just do it slowly, just bang and hit a bag. They're like. How how are you doing that? And you just like you just get used to it. For the long when I was when you, when I was striking all the time, my left bicep was quite a bit larger than my right one. My left arm was actually stronger than my right because you're always jabbing. You're always jabbing. Oh. You're always jabbing and hooking, and you're throwing less right hands than you are left hands. And so my left side was bigger. Like my left arm, I had a bit like I could see it. Like if I flex the two of them together, my left bicep looked larger. And that's a normal thing with boxers. They're, they're, if, you, if you're not a person who switches stances and you keep yourself in an orthodox stance with your left leg forward, you will, you'll have a stronger left hand. Like, I would be able to open things better with my left hand than my right hand. Isn't that weird? Well, I mean, yeah, you're, and you're, you're turning so much, too. So, I mean, I guess when you're snapping back, you're kind of supinating the, when you come back, right? I think it's just the use, just the, the sheer number. Like the if you looked at like a really good boxer, left hand versus right hand, you might throw two to one, maybe three to one, three yeah, to I was one left hand, three to three yeah. to one, maybe you throw a lot. Yeah, if if you're doing it right, you know you're supposed to be jabbing more than you are just throwing haymakers. Well, one of my one of the highlights of the fight, there were several. Ferguson's match was amazing. Ferguson's incredible. I mean, incredible. Dude, that um, guy had catastrophic knee surgery. Like his knee was so blown out. They were they were not sure if he was going to be able to fight again. They were like, I don't know what's going to happen here because he he had ripped his tendon completely off the bone. The scar on his leg is enormous. His scar is like 12 inches long. It's a fucking massive scar. So they had to open him up like a fish. And then they have to get in there and they have to bolt down that ligament to the to the bone. Were they able to use the same one? Pull yeah. it back down? Yeah. They, I mean, he had surgery almost immediately after the injury. He didn't have to have a cadaver or anything like that. Yeah. And the way they do it, I don't I honestly don't know exactly what was involved. But look at that knee. Is. Look at the fucking <laughs> knee, man. That's incredible. That's I mean, that is incredible. And then six months later. He's not just healed up. He's got Anthony Pettis kicking that leg. Yeah. We were very concerned in the beginning of the fight. It looked like he got hurt on that leg because Pettis hit that leg twice really hard, and it looked like he was wobbly a little bit on that leg. Yeah, Looks I was like going to say he survived a, a catastrophic flurry. Yeah, I mean Pettis caught him. Yeah, yeah. and he came back big time because it, it didn't look good. 
there were several fighters that dug really deep that were in trouble and mm-hmm. came back for some awesome comebacks. How about Derek Lewis? Mm-hmm. He's the best. He's the best yeah, ever. He's my official favorite now. <laughs> I love that. That fucking post fight interview is my favorite post fight <laughs> yeah, interview ever. For sure. I go, Derek, why'd you take your shorts off? My balls was hot. <laughs> I love that. How about we say? I, did, I, did. I got a phone call before the fight. <laughs> Donald Crump called me and said, I got to knock this Russian motherfucker out and make it everybody look bad with all this Putin shit. <laughs> I I was in the crowd and I'm like I looked at Sharon and I go Did you say his balls were hot? <laughs> She's like I yeah, she goes, I think he did. Uh, yeah, the people could... in the crowd, I don't think, appreciated it as much as the people back home. It was hard to hear. Yeah. But the people back home, they got it straight from his mic into their TV. <laughs> they got the full version of it. Yeah, it was muffled pretty oh, pretty hardcore. He but... is so classic. He's so funny, man. And And what a fucking puncher. Holy shit. Holy yeah. shit, can that guy crack? Because mm-hmm. he was down, as down as you can get. I mean, he's basically three rounds in the can, three rounds in the hole. And 30 seconds to go. Boom! <laughs> and and we were saying that, that he, we were saying it in the commentary that he still has the kind of power where one shot could win the fight. Yeah. And, then, and, and people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But is he going to win? Boom! He lands it. <laughs> That's what's hard about being live at the fight. You, um, you don't really get the commentary. And your guys' commentary is so good when you're watching on pay-per-view. It's dissecting so many things that you aren't, you know, unless you're very seasoned at watching MMA, you don't appreciate a lot of that stuff. And when you're watching with no one's opinion, you're kind of just watching and waiting for something like that to happen where there's a lot of times you guys are calling that, you you, you know, you're seeing some of that stuff that needs to happen or should happen. And they used to have this thing that you could get. I don't think they have it anymore. It was like a little FM radio. Did you see it at the, I haven't seen it in a while. No, I don't think they have it anymore, but it used to be a little thing that you would, you would buy at the gift shop. It's like a little, and it doubled as an FM radio. So if, if you used it, like it, it still would work somewhere else as a radio. But when you keep it on a certain frequency, they would broadcast the commentary. So you would get the commentary, and you could keep it in your ear while the fight was going on. Yeah, that is one of the things that that's missing just a little bit. Yeah, but it's just there's something about being in the building. Especially that one. Yeah. There was just electricity like yeah. radiating from person to person in the crowd. It was electric. Yeah, that was probably the biggest UFC of all time. I mean, it has to be one of them. You know, they don't know. I would They think. won't know for another day or so. But I think it's the most important fight of all time. Because Conor being such a huge superstar and then being out of MMA for two solid years and then Khabib just being so dominant, 26-0. and 0. And then there was also, like, the controversy of, like, how he won the title. You know, he won the title last minute. He was supposed to be fighting Tony Ferguson. Tony gets injured. Al Iaquinta steps up, and it's for the title. And everybody's like, what? How is that for the title? Yeah. You know, the the, the whole thing was just very, very weird. If there's not a, a rematch, which you would think numbers-wise there has to be. I don't think so. I, I wouldn't think there'd be a rematch. Not for a long time. Well, what's awesome is if there isn't, and kind of the counter politics are out of that weight class, now some of the fights we'd get to see, like I'd love to see him in Ferguson would be Ferguson's freaking, the fight. Yeah. That's the fight 100% now. Yeah. After Ferguson dominated Pettis like that yeah. and then also overcame that big shot where he got hurt. Yeah. 
I don't I don't want to see McGregor versus Khabib again. I no. don't think it's going to be any different. There's so many more that would just be awesome. I would like to see it in the future. I mean, but Connor would have to do something to show that he first of all there is absolutely a factor in that he had not been fighting for 2 years. Yeah. One yeah. boxing match in 2 years is just not good enough for yeah. MMA, especially with wrestling, just not good enough. And then I think he would have to, like, really, really concentrate on his wrestling. And even that, even that, I mean, how much better can he get? Dude, Honestly. that guy was wrestling a bear as a kid. Yeah. I mean. He's so much better. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's going to have so to go back better. in time and, and yeah. rethink this. I mean, Khabib might just have his number for life. You know, that's what Cormier said. Mm -hmm. You know, Cormier, I, I was argument. talking to Cormier after the fight. He said, he was like, listen to me, he's never going to beat him. Never. He's never going to beat him. I go, you don't think he could ever get to the point where he'd get his takedown defense up enough? He's like, it'll never happen. He's never no. going to get there. He's too far away. He's got to get a, a, a just a clean one shot that just ends it. <sighs> that would be it. Yeah, that would be it's it. It's like that in my field, too. I mean, I stay, I, I guess I stay honed but i'm not like razor sharp mm -hmm. in my field just so like you mean pr like target archery like yeah. if you're going to compete yeah people all the time say you why know don't why you don't compete? you why don't you compete and it can i shoot better than most people at this point yeah you know i can answer that without question can i shoot at a at a work like could i have beat myself when i was shooting on the teams no way like that was a different person and when i stepped away for for two or three years, even though I contemplated coming back, I'm like, this commitment is going to take a year, two years of really fine-tuning. Because, I mean, at those levels, people don't miss, you know. So missing one or two still means it's a burnt weekend. It's still a burnt tournament. Like, you have to be flawless. And if you're not flawless, then all you're doing is donating money. And when you compete in those tournaments, what's the distance? It depended. There's several different formats, um, anywhere from 18 meters, which you were shooting at something the size of a dime. Um, and most of those, you know, like a 600 round, you would need to be, you know, then I was shooting like, you know, upper 590s um, at something the size explain, of a dime. Explain what that means. So like um, to hit that to hit that X the size of a dime is a 10. So you would have to, you know, literally. Say two times. Yeah, out of sixty arrows in in like in tournament play, you would have to hit that dime, you know, fifty seven times. Um, and then you know when we went out to the longer distances, uh, up to ninety meters. I mean, you have to be shooting something a little bit larger than the, than the end of that coffee cup. You know, you'd have to you'd have to be deadly accurate with that thing. I mean, you're going to have to be in in the high 90 percentile of being able to hit that and you also get used to the competition you get sharper because your mind's in that place well you're that's there all the yeah, time that's the hardest mm. part even if you're on the game which there's been times like this past summer um i had a event that i did for um a cabela's experience where some of the cabela's black signature card members kind of i guess bought an experience and i did 
um, some training at the Easton Center with them, and then we went and shot the Total Archery Challenge in in Utah. And you know, we talked. I talked through the technicalities of what you would do on each shot. Explain a, what the Total Archery Challenge is for people. Total Archery Challenge is a tournament that, or it's not even a tournament. It's more of a fun event where they set. It's in Snowbird, and they set archery targets like in real hunting situations, but with very very technical shots, extreme angles, longer distances. You got crosswinds and canyons. And Port- Snowbird, for people who don't know, is a ski course. Y- yep. What is that? Sorry. I, was, I actually had the video. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just very technical because you're, the footing's poor. Oh, here it is. Yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, this is the Total Archery Challenge. So it's really interesting because it's in the summertime, but it's at a ski place, a yeah. ski range. What mm-hmm. would you call it? A ski... What would you call it? Yeah, it's ski a... Ski course? Ski no, course? it's a... It's at a ski lodge, yeah. Yeah, but it's what a is uh, what is where the where the slopes? It's slopes. literally a resort, yeah. It's yeah. snowbird. So you take the ski lifts up to where these things are, and uh, these targets are all set up, and there are all these foam deer and foam sheep and all these different uh, game animals, and they're at extreme distances and yeah, with weird angles. You take the uh, you take the the tram all the way to the top of the mountain. And then you literally shoot down. I think it was about six miles for us to get down. I think our total walk one day was about six miles. Um, But I shot it with this group and taught them the technicalities of it. And because of that, I really wanted to be prepared. I knew that there was going to be people there watching. I knew that because I stepped into an actual event where there were a few thousand archers there, I knew that there was going to be a lot of people watching me because I haven't gone out into like that realm in a while it would be no different than if all of a sudden you know you were out of mma for a while and then went in there you know there's going to be eyes on you so i just wanted to be on my game um or as best as i could be so i set a goal i'm trying to think what it was i think i set a goal of like mm, i think it was around ten thousand arrows i wanted to shoot prior to that um so over a course of just a few months, yeah. I mean, I think the one day I shot around 500 a day, a time, I think I time-lapsed one of those. I don't know if you remember that. Um, but once you go there, even if you're totally on your game, if you have to shoot with other guys that are elite-level athletes, there's still a lot that goes into it. I mean, then, and especially if you're shooting for score, you're shooting for money, those pressure factors if you're not acclimated to them those aren't things that you can just step back into when i was my best as a competitor i all like my practice was almost at tournaments every weekend it Mm. was i mean 40 something events a year you know every three days you're at a tournament in the heat of the moment with the best five or six people in the world and then you go home for a few days, you repack, you retune, and then you're right back in the grind again. Somebody got stripped of a title because they tested positive for THC and beta blockers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is real recent, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I <laughs> competed, um, so, I mean, yeah, you, uh, you're, depending on what level you're at, there was, because I shot with the, the U.S. team, certain tournaments didn't have doping. And then, but when you shot anything that was on a world level, you did. So I was always in a doping pool. So, you know, it was no different than like when I was I was uh, with Chad Mendez at a turkey hunt. And you it, mean a testing pool? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they would test your blood or your urine. What would they test? Either one. 
Yeah, and you would be on call. You'd have to. Have let you ever them tried know. beta blockers? What is that? What do they do? You ever well, tried? Well, no. The, it's supposed to um, kills block, your nerves, right? I would think it blocks adrenaline. Yeah. Right. The ability for your brain to ad- to dump adrenaline. So yeah, the the number one thing in archery, or any type of finesse sport, is you know low heart rate, keeping your heart rate down because that's obviously keep you know keeping your mind in the game. Um, and stability, very minimal movements. So, yeah, there's um, – I remember I had a coach a uh, long time ago. He talked about um, alcohol and how alcohol could help shooter. Because we I th- we were talking about a guy that had done well at tournaments several times, and I said, yeah, he always does good. And he said, yeah, he's always, he's always drunk. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, he goes, if you play alcohol the right way and you're like – not sloppy drunk, but you're he Got goes a he, buzz. yeah, he just like stays in his zone and he's just kind of sitting there drinking the whole time, and that was but like prior to where they were testing for alcohol, so he actually made us uh he said, all right, well, let's see how you how you do if you shoot when you have a buzz going, so you know we we drank and shot, and uh you know, don't try this at home, kids uh <laughs> it wasn't an archery range where they have to buy insurance or whatever, but uh yeah, and it you know it, that was part of it because at the time this was in the mid '90s. Another archer that had won a bunch of titles also tested positive for beta blockers and had had some titles stripped. Um, but then for the longest time, that was one of my complaints. Was once I was shooting um, at a level with with the teams and we we had to go through testing or be te- like if. For example, at an event when I medaled, if you're in the top three, immediately you get tested. I mean, so that's how it is. So you know everyone there is level. They're all level. But then you go to other events, like, for example, some of the biggest money events were the 3D shoots, and that was a big reason why I left those shoots because at those tournaments there was no (coughs) testing. There was no testing. There was clearly guys there that were shooting that were kind of just out of it, there could be fifty thousand dollars on the line, and there was just no, not a sweat cracked, because there, you know, some of that stuff. Obviously, it is a performance enhancer because of the fact they're not having to deal with adrenaline spikes and accelerated heart rate. For people who don't know what we're talking about, three D shoots are a type of tournament where <clears throat> they have those uh, realistic looking targets, so foam elks or a foam bear, and they have yep areas that you're supposed to hit. Yeah, and and um, the other thing was I didn't like the fact that um, at that time when you scored, it was just based off if there's four guys in a group, whatever the majority voted, that's how it scored. And when there's a lot of money on the line. So, like, say you shot and I shot, Jamie shot and Sharon shot. We'd walk up and, you know, it's they're foam rings. So you, the arrow could look like it's in, it could look like it's out, but it's not a clear line. And we would just, if me, you, and Jamie said that's out, then even if Sharon's was close, it'd be out. Um, so I was in some groups where things got a little shady. People were wanting to make money, and it got apparent that it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a judge there calling every score, which on a world level, there's judges there. Oh, so if you guys were all competing against each other, you would call for each other? I've seen groups where they did. Oh, that's calm. Yeah. That's yeah. wacky. Yeah, I've seen so groups where they try, did. You ever try beta blocker? No. I want to know what that's like. I'd like to do something nerve-wracking. 
try a beta blocker and then do something fucking really nerve wracking. Can me and Andy throw you out a plane? No. <laughs> <laughs> Please. No. I think you would like it. Whether I'd like it or not, it's not happening. Well, I'm not interested. It doesn't get much sketchier than that uh, roller coaster we were on yesterday. Yeah, we we did the roller coaster at New York, New York. Oof. Sketch city. That thing felt like it was tied together with bubblegum. <laughs> I couldn't believe how rickety it Dental was. Floss. It feels so uncomfortable. You're like, wait a minute. This is just way... Uh, it's old. It's outside. Everything's outside. You're f- flying around the, the casino itself. like, And the whole thing just feels like it shouldn't be there. Yeah. It, it, I think there's several things there that are a little outdated. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the... I was... I was one row behind you guys, and uh, I was next to this kid who had never ridden a roller coaster, and he was terrified. Like, he was terrified, and I thought, have I just not been on one of these long for that long to where this feels like it could possibly shake off and we could launch on, like... <laughs> when was the last time a roller coaster did break loose? Like, when was the last time someone... There was something last year, I believe, that happened. Something happened last year? Yeah. Don't show them. Mm. When those carnivals roll into town, yeah. that's, that's on you. If you get <laughs> on one of those fucking things, I was at one a couple of years back, and I took a picture of it for Instagram because there was uh, this one of those whirly wind things. Oh, roller coaster derails. Two riders fall 30 feet to the ground at Daytona Beach. Oof. Oh, don't show me this. I think that's just afterwards. It looks oh, that's like. it? Hanging? I don't think they got the live video. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, woof. Daytona Beach. But that's Florida. See, anything that's fucked up could happen in Florida. I guarantee <laughs> the guy who was fixing that's on OxyContin. He's probably got a python in his pocket. Fucking assholes. They need one of those in a Bucky's. Do they yeah. have a roller coaster in a Bucky's yet? No, they don't. But Te- they need one. Does Texas? Texas is not known for roller coasters. They're a little wiser than that. I bet you could wrestle grizzly bears in Texas, though. Like, if someone wanted to train. Oh, yeah, you could probably shoot them, too. Probably do whatever you want. Yeah, we could do a brown bear wrestling training camp. As long as it's an exotic, that's the whole thing about Texas. Like, if if, if it's an exotic animal, meaning it's not indigenous. It's not native. You can kind of do whatever the fuck you want to it. (laughs) It is crazy. Texas is a fascinating place. It's one of the weird states that almost all the land is private. That's a that's a rare thing. Like there's a public land system in this country with, you know, the Bureau of Land Management and <clears throat> all the different national parks. There's like none of that in Texas. You know, Texas is mostly just private ranches. That's yeah. weird, right? It's very weird. Yeah, it's very weird. There's been roads I've been down where you're just driving, and for miles and miles and miles, it's nothing but high fence. It's like yeah. people's private ranches just, like, gated in. Yeah. You know. It's strange because they have these ranches that they seem like wilderness because the ranch will be, like, 10,000 acres, right? But it's if it's 10,000 acres, it's fenced in. And part of you goes, well, hey, man, the whole country's fen- fenced in. You get to the ocean, you can't go any further. That shit's kind of <laughs> like a fence. I haven't heard that excuse, but there you go. That's how I look at it. Yeah. You go far enough north, you hit the, the ice. Yep. You hit the glaciers. Yeah. Where are you going? Yeah. <laughs> but there's something about that 
kind of experience. Like that's one of the the weirder things about Texas is that they have these enormous fenced-in properties where they have all these African animals running around. Yeah, like Nilgai and Elans and you name it. Yeah, and they're they're Zebras, they have more of those beasts. animals running around in Texas than they do in the wild of their countries, like Oryx. Yeah. Like Oryx, they're like, they're threatened in other parts of the world, right? They've got a ton of them down there. Texas, they got a fuckload. And black bucks. Yeah. Lots of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, they have lots of stuff. Axis the same way. But so how do you feel about that? Like if you, if the place is like, this is like a philosophical argument, right? If it's 10,000 acres and it's fenced in, that's far greater than their natural range, right? Yeah. They, they normally wouldn't wander any further than that. It's an ongoing debate. I mean, it is. Squirrely, right? Yeah, it's squirrely. Yeah, there's, um, because even with like animals that they, you know, where they want to score and then put into like record books, you know, mm. to, to to keep track of scores. So, you you know, there's certain score scoring clubs that don't recognize anything with a high fence. But then at the same time, there's like members within those organizations that are like, well, wait a minute. You know, if a ranch is 15,000 acres, that's, you know, they kind of have this same argument. And they said, well, is that? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if if there is. And as a hunter, it's one of the things that um, there's kind of a continual debate. Some hunters absolutely refuse to hunt anything that has any sort of containment. Other people have their kind of their, you know, they have their own threshold of, well, if it's 5,000 or more, then I'm kind of okay with it. Mm. Um, it. It's hard. I mean, it's no different than, you know, some people in the hunting community, some people only want to hunt animals that are on public land. And then some people, you know, like to hunt areas where it's, you know, it's managed properties. It's privately owned properties that have really good management. And you know that, you know, you're shooting you know, a certain age limit, you're kind of culling out, you know, the older animals maybe that aren't breeding anymore. Um, so yeah, there's, there, there's continual differences of what people feel like, you know, they want to accept. Some people want to be able to, some people just like hunting like Nugent. He just loves hunting his ranch, right? I mean, he hunts that thing. And I think, but he also has, he's has a problem moving around well. He doesn't, I mean, he can't really go elk hunting, like where he goes hiking into the mountains eight, ten hours a day. He but can't. he legitimately loves hunting Texas ranches. Yeah. Like, he legitimately hunts But he sits at tree stands. I mean, I think he's limited to that. Like, he has two bad knees, like really bad. Like, his, he's got artificial knees. He's had some serious surgeries. We've got friends that love to hunt, um, like, exotic ranches. Yeah. Well, but I can see... I could see the argument both ways. Yeah. Like me look, too. if you're a meat eater and you want to get meat from a free range cattle ranch, you know, you only want grass fed, grass finished beef yep. that's that's free range that roams around. Like there's a lot of people that feel that way. Yep. Well, what is why are you hunting? Are you hunting because you in, you want meat? Are you hunting because you want to kill your own meat? Are you hunting because you want to eat wild game? Are you hunting because it's fun? Or are you hunting for all the reasons, all the above? And if it's, it's if it's an all the above, some people feel like the only kind of hunting they want to do is backpacking, public land, yep. go into the wilderness, and they don't want to have 
anything to do with raising those animals, helping those animals. They want those animals to be straight up wild. Yep. You know, and they feel like that is the most ethical way. There's a lot of weird debates about public land, too. Here's one that really gets me. There's a lot of people that are really into public land. And they, they, the public land is super important to them. They, want, they only want to hunt public land. But they have secret spots on public land. And they don't want anybody to know about them. And if you tell someone about their spot on public land, they'll get mad at you. Like, if you take someone to a spot... I've heard uh, Ranella talk about this on his show. Like, he's a big public land guy. Yeah. But he'll talk on his show about what a betrayal it is if you tell a person about a spot and they tell someone else about that spot. Yep. Or they go to that spot without you. Mm -hmm. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Is this public <laughs> land or is it not? <laughs> and if it's not, if it is public land, if you're telling someone about a spot... You're telling me that this public land spot, you don't want them going to without you? Not unless they find it on their own. That is fucking ridiculous, <laughs> right? That's ridiculous. It's like you it's have a, a private line. spot. Yeah, it's You a, have a private spot on public land. So you're a public land guy until it infringes on your own privacy. Like yep. you figured out a way to have a private spot. On public land, and if you share this private spot with someone else, they're not allowed to go there without you. Fuck you! That's crazy, <laughs> dude. It's that's either... the number one rule in fishing, too. But someone it's takes private you... or it's not. Yeah, but if someone takes you to a sweet little spot where they just rip lips constantly on on a lake, and then next thing you know, they go out there on a weekend, and you're sitting there in your boat with a bunch of buddies. That's stupid. This is, is <laughs> they're this gonna a get public mad. lake they're or gonna not? They're going to be like, bro, I took you to my spot. <laughs> well, they're assholes. That's stupid. <laughs> I don't think so. You think they should not go there? I think there's... Do you think they own that spot? It's no. a fucking giant lake. No, they lake. don't own it. Okay. They don't own it. Let's, let's talk about like Lake Superior. Okay. We've got a giant ass lake. Yep. And someone has a spot where all the lake trout live. A little reef, yeah. Yeah. Where everything's chilling and out. You tell me about that spot. And then you go back there six months later, and I'm at that spot. You're going to be mad at me? No, probably not. Not me. But what if it's a guy that you don't know as well? If I went back and you had a whole bunch of guys there, it'd be like, dude, should have saved this spot for That's us. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a fucking public lake. I'm not taking you in any of my spots. <laughs> Better not. <laughs> See, this is the thing. This, these people that say they want everything to be public, that's not public. It's not public if you don't want other people going back there. I see the argument, though, because he put in the work to find a good place that took work within public land. Then you better not tell people about it or they're going to go back. Yeah, that's – well, that's where that you go wrong. Yeah, if you find it, you got to just – you got to just keep it quiet. That's so corny. That's so ridiculous. Like, you want that spot to yourself. You want that spot to be private. In a way, yeah, you do. Yeah, you're making a private area. Mm -hmm. In public land. That's yeah. what you're doing. Yep. I, th I think that's preposterous. Well, could you imagine if you, say you were going elk hunting, you left camp an hour and a half before daylight, and you pack all the way out there, and there's someone sitting on your glassing rock in that basin. It's not yours. But you would still say, someone I should have never first. told this guy that it's it was here. It's public land. All right. Someone got there first. No one's ever going to tell you about their spot. This is a spot that's been the same way for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, it's it been has, that way. It has. But someone found it. Put in the work to find it. This is some small-minded thinking, man. Yep. This is some small-minded thinking. I know. Sorry. But this is a common way of thinking. 
I would say. I'd say there's people that don't think that way, but there's certainly people that are. I would have to side with, with Rennell on that. Really? Yeah. So you think, so let me ask you this. So if you, if someone takes you to a place and it's this really good mule deer spot and you got to, you hike in seven miles and it's this beautiful basin and you go there and it's just always deer there. You don't go there without that person's permission? I would tell, I would say, are you going to be there? And if he said no, and I'd say, can I go? I wouldn't take what? anyone. That would can be code. I go? That'd be code, can man. Can I go to national forest land? Yep. Can I go to public land? Can I go to this spot that you don't fucking own even yeah. a little bit? Out of respect for that guy that found it. Found it? Yeah. He just walked. He walked on, on the found dirt. It. Found what? A tree? This is my tree. <laughs> yeah. This is crazy. This is my rock that I stand on. This top of the cliff is my cliff. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you can take it to a point, but it's crazy. I still think it's code. It's a weird code. The other argument, though, too, is just from a hunting situation. Jamie, as a person who doesn't hunt at yeah, all, does Jamie, this seem ridiculous? I mean, I, I've heard it, so I understand. Like, it's not right. a new concept to me, but I'm trying to compare it to something else. Like, if it was a cub. Like basketball hoop i found somewhere and i like i don't tell somebody to go to that playground because it's my hoop and i show up and people are there playing a public just playground find another hoop to play on well or it, you don't play basketball that day, it seems kind of it I'm seems to, ridiculous silly but i'm just trying to think yeah that you like you have a especially in today's day and age because today people use like onyx maps and they use google earth and you you could find these beautiful spots and you just go out to them like, if you find a beautiful spot on Google Earth and you go out to it and you go, hey, man, this is a spot I found. Don't go there. This is my spot. This is my one. spot on public land. Well, Seems ridiculous. Yeah, it does. It does. But there, I think there's a legitimate code to it. It seems ridiculous, but it seems understandable that someone would be upset if they're looking forward to going to a place and they told you about it a year ago, and they go to that place, they hike in, take some nine miles, yep. and then you're there. Yeah. Tough shit. <laughs> go another nine. Should have got there earlier, you procrastinating motherfucker. <laughs> I'm taking you with me when we're going to someone's spot. I'll let you don't, don't. No one owns any spots. See, that's what's so weird about it to me. It's It's... It's, there, there definitely is a, there definitely is a line. I mean, I, yeah. I see your argument a hundred percent, and I know it. You know, at some point, it, it, it could definitely get childish or out of hand. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of, ton of stuff, but out of courtesy, yeah. I mean, if anytime you showed me something cool, if you're like, hey, I got this cool thing, this is what I do, you know, I, it's kind of private. Take my family there, whatever. I'd be like, yeah, I respect that. But I'm, it's not private. That's what's weird. Yeah. What's weird right. is the whole well, thing about not either, public land. But fishermen would be the same, right? But it's, it's, captains, it's still crazy. Boat captains. It the is. The whole thing about public land is that it's supposed to be everyone's. So if you find a really good area in public land, that's supposed to be available for everyone. Yeah. But that's not what everybody wants. What everybody wants. That's one of the things about people not wanting new people to get into hunting. Like, I've heard this argument before. Like, you shouldn't be telling people to get into hunting because it's already tough, out, tough enough out there on public land. There's already so many people hunting on public land. If more people get into hunting, there's going to be more pressure. Like, what? Yeah, that's, that's not me. I'm oh. definitely looking to get more people in for sure. Right, because you're thinking they don't, they don't know about your spots. <laughs> 
I'll find a new spot. I'm that's good. a good attitude. One but... of the um, one of the questions, or I guess arguments too, is you know I don't understand it when people they don't have any tolerance for like hunting private land, so to speak, or they don't have tolerance for you know. I don't mind people that that hunt like exotic ranches or hunt high high fence. That's just not that's like not what I personally like. But I also understand that people do. But I I also don't like it when people are like super negative to that, but yet they'll have like a bull in a pen or they'll have chickens in a cage mm-hmm. or they'll have a goat and they're like raising but that's a, a and they're thing, raising right? a goat to slaughter. I don't know, is it? Yeah, it is because it shows it's just that, a different scale. No, but it's not because it shows that there's a different thing in the pursuit of a wild animal. There's a different thing to that. Like like here's the thing. Say if you there's a ranch and the ranch is 5,000 acres, which is big but not the biggest. Yeah. And on that 5,000 acre ranch someone shoots a giant buck. Like a huge Two four two hundred forty inch mule deer, like epic deer, and people are like wow. But it's a private ranch, and you kind of know that there wasn't a lot of pressure there, so they probably knew where this deer was. And people that worked in this ranch told people about this deer, and they kind of kept their eye on it, and they knew where to go to find him. Yep. Versus you uh, getting in your truck, driving four hours outside of Reno. In Nevada, getting out into the mountains by yourself, yep. you're like setting up camp by yourself, spending three or four days just scouting. Just finding your spot. Finding your spot. animals out there. Finding your spot. <laughs> but it's more difficult is the point. So like if someone accomplishes that, you look at it differently yeah. than someone who shot something in a high ranch in Texas. It's yep. just a different thing. Yeah. But what I don't what I'm saying is like hunters versus non-hunters, people that are non-hunting that really look down on like what we're talking about well, as hunters, but yet they'll raise a goat right. to slaughter. In but a, they're not in pretending a... that it's some sort of pursuit, man versus ant. See, the thing about the hunting thing yeah. is you're you're looking at it like it's a difficult pursuit. Like yeah. you're out there trying to outwit this animal. For me, yeah. Yeah. That's what I like about it. But if you're in a 400-acre fenced-in property with a bunch of exotics running around, you're sitting in a tree stand, there's a pile of corn down there, and you're waiting for an animal to walk over to that corn and you whack it, yep. that is very different than, say, what you did this year in Alberta when you yeah. were telling me that you were hiking hundreds of – I mean, how how many days did you guys go? I think we went nine, did 100 miles. Yeah, so you hiked 100 miles in the wilderness for nine days. No elk and never got and never one. got one. Never got one. Yeah. Yep. That is very different. Yep. Right? So oh, yeah. that's real hunting yeah. in comparison to someone who's sitting over a pile of corn in a fenced-in ranch. Yeah. See, that's that's why I think people have a problem with it. Yeah. The, the, that anybody would compare what you did to that. And then there's like the intermediary, which is like... A, a really nice ranch that's not a high fence, but it's a private ranch like the place we went to in Utah. Yeah. That is, it's private. Not everybody can go there, but those are just wild animals roaming around. And, and uh, yeah, and opportunity's high. Yes. You know. More opportunity, but no one, nothing's fenced in, nothing's keeping the animals there. And they, those animals have been there for thousands of years. Yeah. That's just what they do. Mm-hmm. You just have the opportunity to hunt a wild animal on a piece of property where there's not going to be a lot of people there. Yep. 
Yeah, I, it's my preference. I like doing. I really like the balance of having really tough hunts, especially because I knew my, you know, my Utah hunt wouldn't quite be the same. That was kind of a very different experience for me. I, I haven't ever like had an opportunity like that, so that was you know quite a quite a difference for me. Whereas um, between the other states that I hunted, I think I did. I think I was right at a, just over 200 miles before uh, before we got our first bull. You know, between there and then hunting some uh, some private land, but also some public land in Montana before finally getting you know that first elk. Can you talk about what happened with Montana with the the bear? Um, yeah, I mean I can talk about it. They actually texted me back and ruled back that it was not a grizzly. Which, what? Yeah, they say it's a. Um, a colored black bear. Do you think that's true? Um, yeah, it's possible. I was going to pull up the pictures. Um, it's an enormous show. black bear. Yeah, yeah. It. You um, thought it was a grizzly. Yep, yep. We shot a. Actually, um, our our mutual friend Andy Stump shot a bull on nine eleven, which was which was pretty um, pretty cool for him to have an experience like that. And it took us. Um, I forget how far out we were. It was, several several miles from camp and we it took us two trips to pack this bull out and uh the first pack out that we did i think we finally got back to camp i don't know somewhere around midnight or something so the next morning we went back at first light took us a while to pack back in there and when we got there um half of the carcass i had already pulled everything apart we had everything game bags everything was strung up in trees um but the actual cavity was half buried and as we were approaching i seen something kind of running off and by the coloration on the hide i really thought for sure it was a grizz um, because i've seen lots of them and we got up there and sure enough it was it was buried so we kind of took a lot of precaution as we were trying to and tell people just explain to people what that means so a grizzly um they will bury something that they find and they i think they do it for a couple reasons one of the reasons is they want they don't want um like prey birds like crows and stuff to be able to see it cuz they'll start talking and then other predators in the area listen for those birds and then you know it's kind of a magnet starts to draw so they like to conceal it so they'll literally kind of pivot on a circle around that kill and and actually claw the ground and and bury them and it's per, like i've seen uh where grizzlies bury a full moose and it's it is ridiculous the type of dirt they can move i'm talking it looks like a skid loader came in there and buried these things and they can do they can do that kind of work fairly quick um, but they'll pile up everything around it and then they kind of normally will create one small little hole at the end of that mound where they'll kind of crawl in there and they literally like eat from one side to the other side you know and uh and it's it's normally uh, the back end first. Um, so yeah, I felt like we had just got there when this bear had just discovered the carcass and had just started the burial process because you know he hadn't pulled anything out of the trees. He had only started to cover the the carcass, which normally they'll cover that seal first, then they'll clean up the scraps around, and then they go to their pile and kind of consume that last. Um, but I was certain that we had seen one. We ended up seeing a wildlife biologist 
later on. And I told him, you know, I thought I saw a grizz, and he told me, he said, well, it's pretty important if you did because there hasn't been one naturally on this hill in, I think he said, 100 years. So he's like, you know, would you be willing to go back in there to put a camera up? Which is not smart. If it was a, if it was a grizzly, it's, I mean, obviously they're going to be, depending on their demeanor, they could be very protective of that. Um, but, uh, we did end up going back in there just to put the camera up. And then after the camera was there a few weeks, he sent a picture and said, you were close to being right. It's just a perfectly colored, uh, black bear that looks like, like it would be a grizzly. But how does he know for sure? You can tell by, they don't have, um, you thought it was a grizzly when you saw the photo. Yeah, they they don't have a very. I thought it was a younger one, but they don't have a very distinct um, hump on their back, and then mm-hmm. the claw marks. See, he went in. You can tell a lot by the claws. So when you go in and you look at the tracks, that's also a really easy way because, like, like that bear that was uh, wrestling Khabib, uh, you could see the claws. Like grizzlies have very very distinct uh, claws. So that was. Uh, just look in here. So I can't really pull up the pick for everybody. You can send it to Jamie. Let me check it out. Yeah, I can see that that's – yeah. And, and That does and, actually kind of look like a brown bear now that I look at and it. Then or a ru- black bear, rather. Yeah, and then running the, – the head is going to be narrower. Yeah. And it took several pictures. Some of the pictures it looked more like a grizz just because of the coloration. Some of the pictures it didn't. So – um, you know, and keep in mind, you know, mountain grizzlies will look a little bit different than like a coastal bear or, a, you know, a inland grizzly. But either way, it was it was a bear that came in and, you know, covered the whole carcass and went to eat it. Now, so. when you were in Alberta, you went back to that place that you were talking about on the first podcast we ever did where you had that encounter where you shot that elk that was just outside of that wolf den. Yeah. And the wolves tried to claim the elk. Yeah. You guys had a... Shoot your way out of there. <laughs> yeah, that is a fucking crazy story. What was it like to be back there again? Um, it was what was strange about it is while we were there, uh, I actually found that they were back in that area. Um, there was some fresh tracks, and then we heard one howl like during that thing. So it was almost like it was a little bit weird because. Um, did you guys bring extra bullets this time? <laughs> we only had my bow this time. I'm sending you this, Jamie. Oh, Jesus. Um, but uh yeah, the the thing that um the thing that was that's always kind of creeped me out a little bit was just it was I felt like I had like a kind of a personal connection with that alpha male because the way you know he came in at the very end because he wanted to know what the heck had taken out three of his pack he wanted like it's almost like he's like i know we're getting out of here but i want to see this for myself because you know they were close enough but i don't think they could totally see us yeah there it is so as that was going away um it looked like a grizzly yeah it does look like a brown or a black bear though in the nose yep see how the face is more narrow so yeah and then the claws too yep yep yeah which like on the right foot, the claw looks more like a black bear. On the left foot, there was some grass there that made it a little bit strange. But um, when that alpha male came in, 
to kind of, you know, I think he just wanted to know, okay, what's caused all this, this stuff. So, you know, I looked at, I looked him in the face and just pretty much said, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Um, I always, every time I go back in that area, I'm like, you know, if this old sucker is walking around, he knows my smell. He's probably going to be like, there's that. he remembers you? Yeah. I, personally, they are smart. I could picture him remembering it and saying, oh, okay. This, I owe this dude. I owe this dude. <laughs> I'm going to make him into a hairy turd on the side of, yeah. I sent you that uh, that wolf, <laughs> that big wolf shit that had porcupine quills all yeah, over it. Yeah, I put that on Instagram. It's funny how many people are like, that. that is not porcupine quills. It's like, listen, people. I, I'm in the outdoors 200 days, probably a year, and if there's porcupine quills coming out of a pile of shit, I'm pretty sure I know what it is. It's hard to tell from a photo. Yeah. But... You see, pull, it's on my Instagram, <laughs> oh, Jamie. Oh, great. Here we go. It's uh, a pile of shit with porcupine <laughs> quills in it. You imagine how goddamn hungry you have to be to be eating porcupine quills I don't, and swallow I think a wolf's that tough. He doesn't care. It's like a bear. <sighs> Look at how many bears just will just go head first into a pile of ant, like a fire ant bed or a, yeah. or a wasp nest. Yeah. Like yellow jackets. There it is. Make that a little bigger, please. Down in the bottom, you can see some nice quills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so people go, that's hair. Yeah, there is, there is porcupine hair in there, correct? But those are also quills. <laughs> there's there's a couple of blood drops up there. Oof. Yeah, that needs some prep H. Uh, Owie. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're beasts. They're beasts. That is, you know, I th- I think I think their intelli- their intelligence level is is super high. I think a lot of, you know, the more you're in the outdoors and you experience things, demeanors and their uh, their ability to survive. You know, you look at a one of the you look at an old grizzly that's been in those woods for twenty years. Think of the experience level that thing has surviving every single day. Mm. I mean, every day just maybe making a slight mistake, slipping up a little bit, almost getting jacked by another grizzly, and then you're like, oh, yep, I know not to do this. I know not to do that. I mean, their their, intel- their intelligence level and their ability to function is extremely high. And, and wolves are, I mean, arguably wolves probably get shot less than probably any of the other animals i mean they're in they are incredibly smart so yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't doubt it you know it was um and they're they they were very after that they were very um intent in that area for people to they put up some pretty big bounties on the wolves and they really went after them and and knocked those herds down quite a bit because there was very few mule deer, like very few mule deer. You'd hardly see a doe and a fawn. They had to cut the number of tags way down. Uh, elk, as soon as wolves like howl at night, if a pack moves into an area and they howl, like calling elk is just non-existent. They just, everything's just like, don't say nothing because, you know, they're here. Um, so, yeah, I think I think them thinning them down was, was very relevant and, since then, which was quite a while ago, um, the numbers of like elk and moose, I, like this past year, I saw way more moose than I've seen. Um, I think they're really hard on moose fawns. Um, and yeah, I mean, moose, muleys, whitetails, I saw way more animals this year 
than in the past up there. And I think it's just because that moose number or the wolf number was just much lower. Um, but there was, like I said, there was still sign that there was some in the area, just nothing like several years ago when I was there. It, it was, you know, it was even I would say as much as I appreciate balance in nature, it was excessive. And it's getting that way now, like even in Wisconsin. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine um, up in an area. I used to live up by kind of in the La Crosse area. I actually lived a little northeast of La Crosse by a small town called Cataract. And there was a few times where there were some wolf spottings. Um, there's a big military base here called Fort McCoy. And I lived up on the northern side of the base, um, what was called the impact area. They kind of shot test rounds over and they kind of, I don't know, went off there or whatever. But there was an incredible number of like deer and things that were in there. So, you know, kind of the rumor was that they had introduced wolves into their timber wolves to let to kind of thin down some of those numbers. Well, now it's to the point where the amount of people I know in Wisconsin that see wolves is just rapidly increasing. And obviously when that happens, you know, they eat stuff. I mean, wolves don't mess around. They take stuff down. And sometimes it's just strange. You don't understand the balance of um, of why there's an introduction to something that, you know, has the possibility to just take over. You know, it's it's strange. Well, it is, but it's also there needs to be some sort of balance. You yeah. don't want the animals overpopulating, and you do want some sort of a balance between predator and prey. But the real problem becomes when people don't want to manage the predators. Right. They only want they they want nature to sort itself out. Yeah. It, does, it doesn't really work that way, though. Yeah. I mean, it just people need to understand like if you do like deer and you like moose and you like all these other animals you can't have too many wolves you Prey can't have animals. too many yeah. yeah you can't have too many grizzlies because if you do you're going to have very few of those other animals you're not going to see them they're going to get wiped out and in some places like they're almost at the the point of extinction like what that what, what is that caribou herd that's in north america this I'm one not, small I'm not, caribou herd. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with it because I've never really been a, um, a caribou person, you know, from a hunting aspect. But they're an animal that's, like, severely targeted by wolves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see it. Anything with a very predictable migration is going to be very prone to, you know, to any type of prey creature. You look at... You look at any of the migrations of like wildebeest and stuff like that in Africa where they're having to migrate. It's like those crocs are just like, oh, yeah, yeah here we, we know, go. We know where that river crossing is. <laughs> we know where the neck down yeah. is. It's the same thing. It's well, caribou, just, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but many people don't. Uh, the females actually have antlers. And the reason why they have antlers is to fend off wolves. I didn't know that. Yeah, female caribou have antlers. Yeah, they're one of the only deer species where the females have antlers. Yeah, I didn't know. Make sure, was, that's, make sure that's true. I don't think. Well, I mean, I guess. If, sure it is. I guess if it's for wolves, but they um, all have antlers, right? All caribou have antlers. Well, you're male and female. It. I didn't think so, but I think they do. How good was uh, how good was that elk from that you Utah? cooked in camp? Oh, yeah. fantastic! Is that true? I'm right. Ooh, yeah. You're usually right. Uh People would disagree. I'd say eight out of ten times. <laughs> There's a few times where I say things though, and I go, "What the fuck are you saying? You know what you're saying?" I don't at least know. you, at least you uh, question. Yeah, you question oh, it always, and you laugh about it. Yeah. No, that, I'm no expert. I'm an expert in very, very few things. 
But uh, I think you have very uh, your intelligence level is high. It just says that males are tend to be a little bit bigger. Yeah, and their antlers are a little bit bigger. But yeah, they both have them. Yeah, um, see if it's true that they, the females have it to fend off wolves. Um, I think that's theoretical, actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't think the there's reason. any way they that's know. The part that, that's the part where I was like, yeah. well. I'm pretty sure I saw that in a documentary, that the females have it to fend off wolves. I just that was specula- speculation. 360 yeah. video of them. Uh, what a cool around. animal, man. They're so cool looking. They are cool. I've never hunted them. I would like to. They're supposed to be delicious, and there's a shitload of them. Like, uh, that's the crazy thing about Alaska, the areas of Alaska. Like, they'll have hundreds and hundreds of them in these streams, you know. Uh, I you think know. more than that, depending yeah. on the migration. Yeah. Sure. But um, not streams, you know, whatever, a path full of them. There's one with no antlers. Must have lost them. Do they lose their antlers? Like, it, it's, yep, it's they do, all right? of them have them. It says there are exceptions. Like, there's only one. Look at this one. This yeah. dude got jacked. But you'll see elk like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We see that. Um, Yours had a broken tine, didn't it? A uh, little one, yeah. Not not a big broken one, but we saw one that I almost shot that only had one antler. Yeah, you like that. When yeah. you were with me and you shot that one whitetail, I'm like, he's broken on one side. You're like, I want a gangster. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, they're going down. It doesn't bother me. It, it, the, the antlers to me are secondary. Uh, number one, I want the meat, yeah. and I want a, a mature animal. But two, it doesn't bother me if their things snapped off. It means they're just going to war. Yeah. You know? I was uh, I was really pumped for that camp specifically because I had several good friends there, and I really – you know, I'm just geeked out right now about cooking. You know, Me just, too. Just, I mean, cooking stuff, doing stuff different. Um, that neck that you made? Exactly. Oh, my God. I have to figure out. You got to give me that recipe, and I got to figure out how to do that. That was sensational, man. That was so good. That I, roast? Yeah, we had 51 Ooh. people. Well, there's a lot of camera people there. There was guides. There was, I think, people that maybe worked there. But... Yeah, I made a a massive. I took the one half of the elk neck and did a forward sear. So you know we've talked about reverse sear that our buddy Chad Ward taught us. Um, but this was a I call it a forward sear. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's just a sear. Yeah. So I sear at the beginning uh, in a big cast iron pot. We had a massive cast iron pot. Barely didn't even fit in the Traeger. Um, and so we seared that whole neck and then season it really well. Um, I season it with like a, a Traeger prime rib rub and then a coffee rub. And then I put some of, uh, the black rifle knocked and loaded coffee in there and then, uh, put in, I think about it, it was, the pot was so massive, but I put in about six cups of bone broth and then covered it with a cast iron lid uh, wrapped it all up in foil and then cooked it at 225, I think for about 18 hours because of how big it was. And then we knew it was about ready to be done. So, uh, we grilled some peppers and I think, is that all we put in there? Grilled a bunch of peppers and stuff. Yeah. It was like bell peppers. Yep. Bell yeah. peppers. And, uh, normally I do some jalapenos too. We didn't have any. And then Just put onions in there too. I feel like there's yeah. maybe some carrots or something in there too. Well, there was there was onions. We did grill some onions, um, kind of until they were caramelized. But then opened that up and more or less just took two forks and it just fell apart. Yeah, I mean, just fell apart and kind of did it all. It looked like it looked like a pulled pork butt is what it looked like. And then we went ahead and put in all the 
the grilled peppers and stuff in there, um, put a little bit of um, sauce in there, some Texas spicy and a little bit of sriracha. I covered it back up and just let it – we actually took it out and set it in the Yeti and then let it just kind of sit in that Yeti uh, for about – well, we went out on the evening hunt and then we came back. Um and then we ate it for dinner. So it just sat in that Yeti and just kind of maintained temperature and just let all the juices and everything, re, you know, redistribute back through that shredded meat after we shredded it. And then people just went crazy. The amount of people that were coming up to me saying, what was that? And I'm like, neck. And they, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that a giant bull with this neck that practically dulled knives trying to cut through was just that awesome. But... It really is. Like low and slow is the name of the game um, on some of that stuff. And Well, the those Traeger grills, any sort of pellet grill is such a great way to cook something like that too because you can maintain the exact temperature for long periods of time. And the thing about if you've never used a pellet grill, folks, they use these pellets that are made out of wood. So like this table, if you're going to make this table, they would use the saw to make the table, and they would take the actual sawdust and compress it. And the natural sugars in the wood make this uh, compressed pellet. So they don't add any chemicals or anything. It's just wood. Right. And then they have this element that heats it up, and then they have this little worm drive that feeds pellets down into the heated up area. So the heated up area turns Bam. into – there. Yeah, look at that. Bam. Uh, the heated up area um, turns into fire. And you, you got this little fire going on in this hopper uh, where this hopper feeds down into this cup, rather. So the fire's in the cup, and it keeps dropping pellets in there. So it's a natural fire. It's just fire and wood. And it gives this great flavor to the food that you're cooking, whatever. We're cooking vegetables or anything you're cooking, meat. And, um, it, and those things maintain temperature so well. So you could keep it on... 190 degrees and just keep it at 190 for a fucking day and they're so efficient that you never have to add pellets like you could do the entire 16 18 hours worth of cooking just on one hopper full of pellets oh easy easy i think they said i think one bag of pellets is equivalent to like a full propane thing yeah so this is what we cooked in camp john made uh that is what's called the backstrap which is uh would be a Essentially a tomahawk cut. Yeah. It that's, would, a full, a f- that's a full section of tomahawk steaks. Those are all elk. And There's the pot in the background. So it's basically the rib and where the rib goes up to the top of the back and the back. That meat that goes along the top of the spine is what most people like best out of elk. Yeah, I got to find that picture of the and two So he of cooked us. it like that with, um, with the bones attached just for novelty. <laughs> Yeah. But it was super delicious. Yeah, people like having that handle to chow down on. It was super delicious. And the fact that we were doing it in camp from an elk that you had shot literally the day before. Yeah. So it was as fresh as it gets. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you're doing it in the mountains, the view out there, and just it's incredible. Yeah, it was awesome. It was. I was happy to, to tag out early just because of the fact I was, you know, I had a lot of good friends there, and we were able to to grill out and chill out and and i think we probably ate about a third of that thing over the (laughs) yeah yeah we ate a ton of it we ate a ton of it well didn't you when you were in alberta you shot a deer early in your hunt didn't you guys eat the almost the entire deer yeah we did yeah we did yeah we did 
That's um, a big-ass deer, too. Yeah, we ate a ton of uh, Andy's elk, too. When Andy shot his bull on 9-11, we still had, I think, five days left of hunting. So we ate elk three meals a day. Um, one of the things I always do is I'll always take a Traeger with me. Or, or um, you know, honestly, it sounds weird, but it's an investment to even if it's one of the portable ones, just to get one there. To well, that new camp. one that they have is awesome. The That's Ranger. The really small one. Yep. That thing is perfect. That's yeah, perfect size. And it's not heavy either. No. That no. thing's a perfect size for, for camping. Yeah, it's um, – I'm trying to think. I don't know what the weight is, but, yeah, it's perfect for camping. And you can just plug it in. Like I have a Ram truck, and you can actually just plug in right – inside i've normally just have an extension cord run it through the rear window and just plug and go i mean i took one uh with me and sharon went down to oklahoma hunting and actually uh, that thing right there yeah yeah how much does that thing weigh does it say mm, i don't know it's not super light because i mean they they're they are heavy they are heavy duty 41 pounds yeah that's crazy yeah I mean, it's for on the go. It's awesome, and the new Ranger one's actually a little better than that one. It's got a digital. It's got a digital um, scale for the thermostat. Is the new one for sale? Yeah. Or is what's this sold, one? This one's sold out. Yeah, that one's sold out. There was the new one's called the Ranger. Um, but yeah, they're they're dynamite. You can just plug them in. You don't. Well, we were talking. Yeah, there it is, right there. Three ninety nine. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, if you lived in the city, like I've got a, I, I bring him up a lot just because I think what he does is cool. But um, I've got a buddy that lives in New York, and I found him on Instagram working out in Central Park all the time. And uh, one time I was in, I was close to Central Park in the morning, and I knew he always worked out early. So I text him at like five in the morning. I said, Hey, dude. I said, Are you up? And he texts back and said, Yeah, his name is Joseph. And I said, I want to do one of these Central Park workouts with you. And he just carries some supplies in a big backpack, and he rucks in. And then he literally just, like, has certain rocks and stuff. And he has uh If he got there and you were on his rock, would he get mad? <laughs> no. He would be happy. See? We've got to learn a lesson here by Joseph. Um, yeah, exactly. So I did a workout with him, but, you know, he was telling me, he's like, you know, if you ever get any of that elk meat or anything, I'd love – you know, I'd love to try it. And he's big into, I think, keto. Uh, but he was telling me how much he pays for store-bought meat in New York. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that is astronomical. And he's like, and I don't really know where it comes from. You know, and for someone that's that in tune with his body, he was, you know, kind of disappointed that that's what his options were. But then I started thinking, I'm like, well, do you have – you know, do you have the ability for like a grill, you know, living in Iowa or living where, you know, you are, we've got some, some big grills. We have the space for it, but you know, some people, I think back to myself when I was in my twenties living in an apartment, you know, I wouldn't have had the space for that. That right there is a great, a great option. Yeah. You know, it's literally not much bigger in a couple briefcases. Put it on your patio. Put it on your patio. If yeah. you're cooking for two, it would be perfect. And yeah, you could easily cook for two on that thing. You can cook for more than two on that thing. And the cleanup is the most important thing with any pellet grill, if anyone's ever going to get one. The two things I can tell you are most important is, one, just recognize that, you know, it runs off a wooden pellet. So treat pellet like treat the pellets like you would campfire wood. You know, if, you're, if you leave campfire wood out where it's getting rain on all the time, 
you know, it's going to be a pain to start it or it's not going to burn that great. So if you keep those dry, I always put my pellets after I pour the bag in, whatever's left, I actually put in one of my Yeti buckets and put that, you know, that kind of it's, I don't know, it's like a sealable lid that I push down. Um, Traeger makes buckets. They make buckets specifically for them. They sent me a couple of them. Yep. The buckets are good, but keeping your pellet, you know, if you're in a high humidity place like Florida, um, don't keep, yeah, (laughs) don't keep your pellets outside. Um, you know, if they're in the grill and you're using the grill, that's one thing, but don't keep the, the bags of them out there all the time. And then as you use it, there's the little, it's called a, I think they call it a burning pot. Essentially your pellets are burning in a small pot. Uh, think of that just the same as you would a campfire pit as you're burning wood all the time, there's going to be ash left. And if that pot fills up with ash, there's not going to be the ability for as much pellets to go in there. So it's not going to burn as hot. So, you know, if you get to the point where you're not able to get to your higher temperatures, it's probably because you have too much ash. You've got too much ash in your pot. So yeah, clean it out and then it'll pretty much from there be as easy as flipping it to on and turning it to the to the temperature that you want and it's done yeah i was telling you that i tried cooking on a regular grill a propane grill the other day and it just sucked it was flaring up there's you know fire and smoke because the fat was dripping down into the fire it's like it's a shitty way of cooking they do have a really cool grill though that cooks from above I've seen one of those. It's pretty badass. Like you, you, uh, you can raise or lower the heat and yeah. and bring it closer to the meat or lift it above, and so you don't get any flare ups. It just cooks from above. Well, it's definitely a better way to do it if you're using propane. Because that yeah. I, I remember, I remember once I bought some some ribeyes, and this was back when I didn't have the money to buy good steaks. But I had some people over, and I thought I'm going to buy some good steaks. Went out and you know spit quite a bit getting some good rib eyes and everything and because there's so much marbling i remember i came inside i had those on the grill i didn't even have them that high for temperature i came inside and i you know started working on vegetables or pouring drinks for people and all of a sudden i look out and there's just smoke rolling out of my weber and i go out there and lift it up and my rib eyes all that marbling just it was just a big burning mess it looked like i took a flamethrower to one half of my rib eyes i was so bummed out yeah, it's hard doing it right. Yeah. that's There's an art to cooking. You there know, is. It's one of the things that I'm really uh, learning from getting into hunting and getting into cooking my own food is uh, learning how to do it correctly. And it, it's fun. There's a real art to it, you know, like like that neck roast that you made yep. or like some of the more interesting things. Do you ever do shanks? Yeah, yeah. I did um, I did two last week. Yeah. Um, I shot that whitetail in South Dakota. And I took both of the front quarters and then did slow cooks with those, and they're they're awesome. You know, the the key for any of that stuff that normally has a lot of tendons and stuff that's a tougher section of the meat, a lot of people try to cook them too fast, and you don't break down that cartilage. You know, you need that cartilage to really cook slow to the point where it, like, gels, and it breaks down, and it almost turns into marbling, and it, then it'll turn into flavoring, which is kind of what happened with that with the neck. You know, once it cooks slow enough, even all those harder tendons that are in there, they just slowly start to decompose, and they become, like, more of a marbling that's mixed in, and it's really, really good. I mean, it's it's awesome, and I'm I'm a big advocate on 
the simpler you keep things cooking wise, for me, the better the flavors are that I get. I'm a very simple cook. And when people ask me to do, you know, people see pictures that I post cooking, they're like, well, you know, you need to do a cookbook. No, I'm not. My cookbook would be boring because it would be, you know, olive oil, probably, you know, I would have coffee for rub and have like a prime rib rub, you know, probably a decent like rock salt. But other than that, like grass fed butters, olive oils, or a couple basic rubs, that's all I use, period. And a bone broth if I do like a, if I cook something slow to break down. But I just literally stay with those staple things. And from there, you know, I'll cook according to the directions. One of the things I learned to do was was rest my meat. So I won't take meat off and just cut right into it. And you rest it in a cooler. Yeah, I rest it in a Yeti all the time. All and, the time. And you cover it with aluminum foil. and it, it Or actually, butcher paper, either When one. you do it, like, do you get it to a certain temperature? Like, say, if you want your, your meat to hit an internal temperature, like 130. Do you get it to, like, 120 and then put it in the cooler and then let it rise to, like, 130 while it's in there? Because it keeps cooking, right? Yeah, it's going to it's gonna rise some. Mm. Yeah, it will rise some. you got to um, plan that out before you rest it, too, if you're going to do it in a cooler, right? Yeah. Normally, I... It depends how long you're going to rest it. Um, normally, I plan on about six degrees it'll go up. Um, but you can, as you're resting it in the cooler, you can still check it. You know, you can let it sit for 10 or 15 minutes and then check it. Normally, for me, five degrees is a really good number. Like, if I'll stop five degrees less than where I want to eat it. Because when I put it in there and wrap it up, most vegetables for me take 20 minutes. Like, as soon as I pull that off my Traeger, I'll turn it up to high um, and then take vegetables that I just like toss in olive oil and I'll season them with a basic rub, put them in there. But anything like broccoli, asparagus, peppers, um, cauliflower, anything like that that I cook on there is going to take 20 minutes roughly on high. And the meat is just resting at that point. And then I can literally pull the meat off. If I want to do reverse sear, I can do it just long enough to where that temperature hits the exact number if it hadn't reached that yet. Um, otherwise I can just slice it and according to, you know, the color throughout that, I'll serve it out to everybody according to whether they want something a little more done. You give them one of the end pieces. If people want it less done, you give them the piece in the middle. Um, but typically if I'm going to let it rest for 20 minutes, I'll pull it at about, you know, 129 degrees. Cause I like mine at like 135 or so. You like yours a little less, you like yours a little, you know, redder than me. I think you like yours at more like 130 finish, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too, is besides keeping, you know, the basics for seasoning is those thermopens, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have a, a, a probe, that's the one thing that I learned um, from our buddy Chad Ward is, you know, when he travels, he travels with a good knife and he travels with a probe. And mine's from Thermoworks. Um, is one I got um, as a gift someone gave me, and I can tell you that that was one of the best things to get because yeah, I have a regular internal t- thermometer that's a, it's it's really cool because I can keep it in the kitchen and it's got uh, one probe and then the uh, it registers to uh, a second unit which you can keep like as a remote. You can keep yep. it uh, far far away from the grill. It tells you what's going on. You know, it's like Bluetooth or something or wireless. Yep. Um, uh, Steve Rinella actually has a really good cookbook that just came out. I should say that. I was going to have it in here today. Uh, he sent it to my house, and it's at my house right now. But it yeah, literally just came out. His are on Ninja. 
ninja yeah. level. Yeah, if you want to take things to the next level. I mean, he is uh he's 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 one of those rare guys that has a television show, a hunting television show where literally ha most of the episodes he's cooking something. That's it right now. Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook. Okay, it's available November 20th. It's not available to you fucks yet. I already have it. <laughs> Sorry, folks. But uh, it's really good, though. It's excellent. He sent me a you know publisher's version that had like just black and white photos, but I just got the full version uh, a couple of days ago, and it's it's really excellent. And but he's got really really cool recipes and interesting stuff. And and if you don't have any wild game, me you could always buy bison from supermarkets. Some supermarkets have that, and you could cook that and cook it in the same We're way. We're gonna bust a bison. Yeah. In this winter yeah for a good cause i'm gonna come in and put a fucking bison coat on son i'm gonna do all my podcasts with a giant bison coat you better get an air conditioner in this sucker dude i love bison yeah it's delicious it meat. is it is awesome it is awesome yeah um you myself and our buddy andy stump are gonna go uh for sure me and andy both of our bison are gonna be for that meat is gonna have a purpose um Andy and I kind of, I don't know, through through some just talk at a hunting camp, kind of started this thing that we call Free Range American, right? And it's it's literally a brand that's not really about us. It's just about all these we have we have all these friends that just do crazy stuff, and Andy's arguably one of the craziest friends I got. No, he's just, the craziest. Yeah, he's probably the craziest. He holds the world record for the furthest <laughs> distance travel when those flying squirrel suits. Yeah. He's, he's out of his fucking mind. He is the craziest. But, you know, we just, one time we were just talking about, um, you know, just awesome shit people do. And he's like, you know, we need to just, we just need to motivate people and, and just talk people into to tagging us when they do awesome shit. And so then, uh, that's you know, the shirt. Yeah, the shirt you're wearing. Yeah. do awesome shit. Yeah. And so, did you guys start this company together? This t-shirt yeah. company? Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah. Well, it's more than just that. But yeah, the the entire brand, or you know, like the social media stuff, is all just it's it's based around people that you know just tag us with the hashtag do awesome shit, and they show us what they're doing as free ranging Americans. And you know, it's anything. It's not just what Andy and I like. I mean, if we you know we. Uh, you know, some guys are, you know, firemen that just do crazy stuff. There's people that have some, you know, there's been some motor, some MX guys that just post some crazy-ass pictures, like Shane Dorian, some of the waves he's on. That's just crazy shit that he's doing, And what doing, are you right? going to do with the, the meat from the bisons? We're going to um, – Andy's got a big uh, a big fifth wheel. He calls it the Do Awesome Shitmobile, and we're going to pull that from we're going to start on the west coast um this spring and we're going to start um where andy went through buds and we're going to hit a base for one of each of the military branches we're going to try to end at fort bragg where i was born um but we're going to start with the navy we're going to end with uh with the army and we're going to go to bases and we're just going to cook wild game out on the do do awesome shipmobile we've got traegers um chad ward's going to be following close behind with some uh giant rolling uh traegers and we're gonna we're gonna get these bisons ground up to do some uh some cool bison burgers and stuff like that and if just, you're gonna hit a bunch of military bases you're gonna need a lot of buffalo we're gonna take some buffaloes down and then we're gonna we're gonna also have some really cool brands uh supporting us but yeah we're more or less just trying to support the troops um promote 
you know, clean eating, doing awesome shit, and um, it's going to be fun. So we're still working out the details, but that's going to be coming. And uh, I'm super thankful of all my all my friends that are that are military based or have you know served for us, and and uh, you know it's just another way that I can do one of the few things I'm good at. You know, I can show people how to shoot archery or I can cook for them. That's that's kind of my forte. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a mobile party. That sounds fun. So when that all goes truth. down, I'll, I'll let people know, I'll put it on social media and we'll talk about it here and let, let folks know. Uh, John Cavanaugh should be here any second now, if he's not already yeah. here. I don't know if they're here yet. Are they here yet? Someone's here. They're here. Okay. So we're going to talk to Conor McGregor's coach and George Lockhart, who's, uh, Conor's, uh, um, weight cutting coach, and I think he does his nutrition as well. Looked awesome. Talk to him. He did look dynamite. While he's getting fucked up, he looked pretty good. <laughs> Very <laughs> true. Look, it's a fucking hard sport. It's a hard sport. You know, he he. I'll tell you one thing though. He his. It would have been nice to talk to him afterwards because I think he would have been gracious in 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 defeat. I really do. Yeah, he has I agree been with in the that. past. I agree. And I think uh, he was on social media. You know, he said it was a good crack. You know, uh, I mean, maybe we'll get a rematch. You know, he talked a tremendous amount of shit, and it's it's just hard for people to recover from that. Yeah. But it's part of the game. It's part of the fun. <laughs> part of it. John Dudley. All right. Uh, knock See you, on man. TV. You can uh, catch him on Instagram, and you could follow. N-O-C-K. No, yeah. K- no K on the front. Yeah. N-O-C-K. Knock, O-N-T-V. like Archery Knock. And, and if you're interested in archery, that's the man to follow. Or freerangeamerican.us. There you go. All right, fuckers. See you soon. <laughs>